Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you today, not only desiring your presence for our study, but we actually also want to ask that you will um, be involved in what's happening in the world right now with what's going on with the uh, coronavirus and uh, in the economies of the world. We, we uh, perceive this through uh, the lens of what you've taught us in Scripture, and we just ask that you oversee and your will be done if these are movements that uh, can be uh, utilized to help glorify the, the end-time message and get people to consider e- eternal themes. We ask that your Spirit will empower uh, your witnesses to give this witness, uh, ask that you will guide the leadership uh, in our country and around the world to take actions that will limit the spread and that uh, lives will be, be saved and ultimately turn to you. We ask that you will guide in our ministry and you know what's going on with the difficulty with the website and we ask that you will um, intervene, that this message uh, can uh, be opened and the ch- communication channels will be uh, improved. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing Lesson 11 in our quarterly, Daniel, and the title is From Battle to Victory. And before we actually get into this week's lesson, I wanted to, we went over last week, so I couldn't get into everything, but there was something from Tuesday's lesson I thought it would be helpful to just uh, go through. And I was at the bottom of Tuesday's lessons from last week, there's a quotation there from a, a book called Faith and, um, Faith and Works, and it, and it reads as follows. If you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit... Uh, the proposition would be, would be rejected as treason. And then the lesson then asks, what do these words teach us about our need for an intercessor in our behalf? Well, that's scary. Yeah, that's scary, she says. Scary. Everything that's noble and good in man? I mean, If you present that as meriting your salvation, it would be treason. Exactly. But to think that people don't, don't know the truth that believe that, how sad that would be for them. If people really believe that there's no good in humanity, I mean, we believe there's no good except for Christ. That's where our good comes from. But if people that don't know Christ, right, and they believe that there's nothing good in them at all, they don't have a chance. How do, you, do you believe they have a chance without Christ? No. Okay. So, but that's what that's what this is saying. This is saying that um, if we presented with everything good that we can come up with as worthy or or meritorious or deserving of salvation, it would be considered treason. Now, the question is why? Why would attempting to present anything good and noble that we find in ourselves to God to merit salvation? Why would that be treason to God's government? Well. Let's define some. Let's define what is treason. I looked up in the dictionary. Here, the, here are the definitions of treason: the offense of acting to overthrow one's government, or harm or kill its sovereign; a violation of allegiance to one's sovereign, or one state; the betrayal of a trust or confidence; breach of faith; treachery. So, those are the, the definitions of treason. How would be presenting our noble good works to God to say, I deserve salvation, I merit it because of all this good stuff I've done. How would that be treasonous to God's government? How would that be an act of overthrowing God's government? Uh, but how would it be an act of betrayal? How would that be? Saying, I don't need you, I can do it myself. It would be saying, I don't need you, I can do it myself. Yes? It's the same idea as the little horn presents. 
He says, isn't it the same idea as a little horn? How so? Supplanting God's method of salvation with something else. It's supplanting God's method. What's God's method? What'd you say? Okay, now we're getting in, down, we're, down, we're drilling down. See, we're talking about treason to a government. What are the foundations of all governments? All governments' foundations are their, their laws. That's the foundation of every government is their law. Human laws are imperial, rules made up that require enforcement. God is creator. His laws are design laws, how reality actually works. Okay, So if you went to God and said, I did all this good stuff, what type of a system would that be operating in? That, that, that makes me worthy. It earns something. What would it suggest about the type of government God has if we were to do that? Yes? Maybe it's showing that the laws are arbitrary and I, if I keep them, it's more of an imperial system saying that I don't need divine law because I can do it through imperial law, maybe? Yeah, no, I like where you're going. It's based on my work. So... What is Satan's primary weapon against God? His number one weapon? Lies. Lies. And his number one lie? That he's not fair. Because? Why, why is God not fair? Because his laws are arbitrary. He just makes up rules and enforces them. Every sin must be punished. Urge Satan, this idea. God becomes the source of inflicted pain and suffering. So the act of presenting good works to God to merit, to earn our salvation, is sustaining the lie that God's government works like human governments. Thus, it's treasonous. It, it, it furthers the war. The lies are distortions about God's government that Satan has brought. That's why. To make it more easy, to, it would be like this. It would be like getting... Ebola-infected tissue and offering it to people as a remedy to make them healthy. That's what it would be like. You're taking the actual problem and saying, here it is the solution. That's why it's treasonous. Okay, so what about, what about this instead then? We don't offer any good works that we've done to God to merit salvation. You see, those, that's like a payment method, see? And he needs it to pay for the bad stuff or to merit or earn it. We wouldn't do that because we can't. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. What about this instead? We'll offer him instead the blood of a sinless human sacrifice. And if we offer him the blood of a sinless human sacrifice, now, now that earns our salvation. That's also treasonous, folks. It's also treasonous. It's treason because it's teaching the same lie about God. That's Baal worship. The deity requires something offered to the deity in order to get the deity to extend salvation. Rather than the deity sending, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to fix the problem so that we could be saved. Nothing had to be done to the deity to get us um, uh, saved. Something had to be done to us to get us saved. It's complete reversal. So this, this traditional view of offering the deity the, the blood of Christ to merit our salvation is also treasonous. Does that make sense? Let's go on to Lesson 11, Sunday's lesson. Well, we're going to look at Daniel... 10, 1 through 3, this is out of the NIV. 
It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. What war? The war of the Medes and the Persians? What war? The great controversy war. The war between God, Christ and Satan. This is the great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice foods, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Why was Daniel fasting? What was the reason? Was it, what was his purpose? The heart of Cyrus would be changed. Was it, was it, uh, what was the impact he was hoping to have by fasting? Do you think it was to influence God? If I fast, then I'll, I'll, I'll merit by my fasting an action from God. No, clear it again. Yeah, Wendell? This was the month of the Passover. He was getting ready for Passover. He had moved from his home in Babylon over to Tigris. He had, he had set up and he was trying to prepare himself for Passover. Oh, is that, is that what it says? Um, I fasted and mourned for three weeks because Passover was coming. No, he was preparing himself. Okay. My understanding is it's from the vision. He was still bummed about not understanding the vision. Seems to me that he was doing this because he was distraught and mourning over the vision. Not that that discounts is also incorporating in the approaching Passover and the significance of that. But this was ten years later. Is it is it you suggesting? Is it you suggesting that every year this was just part of his routine for the annual? It's like Lent. He got his ash on his on Ash Wednesday on his forehead, and he went into his Lent uh, approaching the Easter. I don't think this was a ritual. I think it was a true attuning himself to God to figure out, you know, Passover's coming in, and yet nothing is happening. So why do I disagree with your interpretation? We all have our own. <laughs> Pardon? We all have our, yeah, every person be fully persuaded in their mind is fine. Because of what happens. What happens in the rest of Daniel 10? Because of his fasting. As soon as you began to fast, I was dispatched to do what? To give you insight into what? Into this. So I think the context reveals that he wasn't just fasting to prepare for fast, Passover. He was fasting because he wanted insight into this process. And God knew his heart and knew his longings and was responding. But that goes back to the question. Was the fasting designed to impress God? No. No. Or does fasting do something to us when we fast? Make us more focused, more tuned, more receptive perhaps? Does Does our desire for spiritual truth have anything to do with our growth in spiritual truth? And does fat, is fasting a particular way to focus yourself? Does our busyness with life, engagement in entertainment, or real-life responsibilities ever interfere with our connection with God? Could the foods we eat or the things we drink affect our ability to discern truth? The obvious intoxication with alcohol is going to affect us. Everybody gets that, right? But how about the less obvious? Studies show that high sugar diets interfere with normal synaptic function in the brain and impair memory. Omega-3 fatty acids, particularly high in DHA, which is the long chain omega-3, uh, actually have protective effects on memory. I put the references in the, in the notes for those who would like the journal references. What about physical exhaustion, failure to rest? 
to take care of the body. Does that affect your mental focus and attention? What about studying too much? I love this quote. It comes out of um, uh, Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 4 or 5. It says, Intemperance in study is a species of intoxication. And those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, wander from safe paths and stumble and fall in the darkness. The Lord would have every student bear in mind that the eye must be kept single to the glory of God. He is not to exhaust and waste his physical and mental powers, seeking to acquire all possible knowledge of the sciences, but to preserve the freshness and vigor of all his powers to engage in the work the Lord has appointed him. They never told me that one when I was in school. (laughs) They didn't. I didn't get that one. Don't study too much tonight. (laughs) Did anybody get that one when they were in school? We don't want you getting intoxicated on history tonight, guys. (laughs) No, I didn't get that one. But there's some truth in that. Is anybody actually ever exhausted from study? Yeah, Yeah, this is life balance. The body needs balance. What about poor food choices, such as junk foods, fast foods? Yeah, it significantly affects attention and memory, and memory consolidation. Does Daniel's fasting potentially have this real physical impact upon the brain and attention? Do you think it does? Well, fasting increases brain activity and alertness, as science shows, that when you fast, you actually get more uh, speed in the, in the processing of information, as well as um, activating um, um, brain proteins that allow for synaptic connections to form faster, and the neurotrophins turn on, so where you actually can make new neurons quick, more quickly when you fast. This is intermittent fasting. And the references are in the, in the notes. It also, it, it also extends life. People who intermittently fast slow the aging process, reduce oxidative stress, allow for the macrophages to clean the trash and the sludge out of your brain from all this kind of stuff, and you actually live longer. Uh, people live uh, significantly, measurably longer when they fast intermittently. And the best fasting that can do this intermittently is a 12-hour fast every day from like 6 p.m. is the last meal, and you don't eat again until 6 the next day, intermittent fast. And that's why it's called break fast, breaking your fast. So there's literal benefits to, the, to our physical health in, in choosing to fast intermittently. And we can become more focused and have better attention. And we can accelerate the fast if we're really struggling with a heavy burden on our heart and really struggling to solve a problem. We can actually magnify the fast by reducing certain foods, and, and uh, that can actually bring attention. I've done that before. I've fasted, and I can tell you my attention for a period of time improves and my focus improves. But there's an object lesson application as well. In addition to the physical health, um, the intermittent fasting, we can spiritually fast by selecting, being selective on what we take into our minds the things we watch, the things we read, uh, and so forth. Resting and then taking a specific rest for our minds. Um, not doing, even if it's good stuff, that we fast from study. We don't exhaust ourselves and, and become intoxicated on studying the various Bible materials even. We need time to fast from that as well. Second paragraph says, We know from Ezra 4, 1 through 5, that at this time in Uh, The Jews were facing strong opposition as they attempted to rebuild the temple. Samaritans send false reports to the Persian court inciting the king to stop reconstruction work. In the face of such crisis, um, for three weeks, Daniel pleads to God 
to influence Cyrus to allow the work to continue. So this is a part of the uh, thing that Daniel was concerned with, concerned with the uh, the fulfillment of um, Jeremiah's prophecy, can fulfill, concerned with the, the prophecies he's been given, concerned with the rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem. What, but what are the object lesson applications for us? Not only, remember, not only are we reading about real historic people who did real historic stuff, but many of these stories stand as examples of of um, the larger great controversy and what is going to take place in, in the end of time. So, object lesson application. Israel was captive in Babylon, or Medo-Persia at this point. Does the Bible ever suggest that Babylon represents something other than an ancient city? What does it represent? Yes. A system of confusion that exists at the end of time. A system that God's people are called to come out of, to be set free from. Just as Israel was called to uh, come out of Babylon and return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls and temple. So let's define some of the object lesson symbols. Israel represents, in reality, the people of God. Okay? Babylon represents, in reality, false systems of worship and belief that confuse the world, primarily some form of imperialistic religion in which you have uh, um, um, pagan constructs of God who must be presented some sacrifice of some kind in order for the God not to hurt you. you know, this, is the, this is in multiple different forms, and you can see this completely infecting Christianity. The temple in Jerusalem represents... Okay. It represents the, the holy acting out part represents the plan of salvation to cleanse the heart from sin individually, the spirit temple. And um, it also represents the building of the heavenly temple. Okay, I know you're not that you are you know, living stones built together in a house for the Lord. So it represents both the individual spirit temple as well as the corporate church being built together into a house for the Lord. The walls of the, that's the temple. And, and inside the temple, both inside the heart of the believer and inside the, 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 the church of God, the, the actual purified body of believers, what do we find central in the most holy place? Inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law of, the law of God. I'll write my law where in the New Covenant? In your heart and mind. Okay, so the temple represents the individual people as well as the corporate church where the law is a living law and we, that law of love is active and alive in the church. Okay? And that's what we find in the temple of God. And God, of course, presence is the energizing and life-giving presence in the individual as well as in the corporate church. And this is what the temple represents. Individual and corporate Activity interacting uh, on the principles of God and God's design. But what does the wall of the New Jerusalem represent? Yes, yes, it actually does. It represents the law of God, which acts as a hedge of protection. That's what it represents to all those who embrace and pride. So ancient Israel is captive in ancient Babylon, but Israel went captive in ancient Babylon because of unfaithfulness. Christianity... Christianity, because of rejecting the truth about God's law, because of accepting this lie that God's law functions like human law, is in the captivity of confusion of a religious superstitions and myths. 
The minds of the people are held captive. This is the Babylon of Revelation that refers to, a confused system that we are, you know, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Come out of her, my people. There were three decrees given in ancient times, three different decrees telling the people to go back and rebuild. Three different times. Is there an object lesson in that? Are there three different calling outs for us at this time to come out of Babylon and repair the wall, repair the breach, and rebuild and cleanse the temple? Yes. There were, and it wasn't until the third calling out in Old Testament times that they actually succeeded in rebuilding the temple and repairing the wall. The first two didn't, didn't work. They've been three callings that we're, and I'm going to suggest the same thing in reality is happening to us today. That the possibility that this generation we live in today is the third calling out. The first calling out was the midnight cry in the late, uh, in the early 19th century that led, uh, Will, William Miller, that led to the great disappointment in 1844. That was the first calling out. The great awakening. The second calling out, was the 1888 Righteous by Faith message that did not result in repairing the breach. It was a specific, if you study 1888, it was a specific call in 1888 to finally repair the breach. I'll explain the breach in a moment. But the breach was not repaired. And now today we're the final group that finally repairs the breach in the wall, the breach in God's law, and rebuild the temple. So what is the breach in God's law? It's very simple. We've been talking about it here for, for years now. The breach in God's law is the idea that got into human minds that God's law functions like human law. With all the subsequent, once you accept that idea, all the imperial distortions about God come. And all the imperial distortions in our theology. God is, in order to be just, must use his power to punish sinners. Uh, Jesus had to, uh, came and, and to, had to take our punishment. So God killed Jesus on the cross, and then the blood of Jesus is being applied to record books in heaven. And all this legal rigmarole is going on, and we have an intercessor that pleads to God so God doesn't kill us. All of this is part of the Babylon system that's based on this one idea that God's law functions like human law. We have a message in Revelation 14 of the three angels, and the first angel's message is to call people to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that. Stop worshiping imperial dictator that functions no different than us. We can make up rules. We can punish rule breakers. That's how we work. Stop worshiping a deity that works like a fallen human being. Start worshiping a creator who builds reality, and his laws are those laws upon which reality work. This is the message also of Revelation 18. And if you read Revelation 18 and you read the early Adventist writing, you will discover that it was, t- it was taught in the Adventist church that the angel from Revelation 18 is a, is a message that joins with the message of the three angels, and together when those two messages join, then it lightens the world. And what is the message of Revelation 18? It is the message, I believe, of what we're teaching here. And it joins with the message of the three angels. Let me read to you out of something, uh, Great Controversy, page 452 about rebuilding and repairing the breach in the wall, the the metaphor. The prophet thus points out the ordinance which had been forsaken. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on on, uh, my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, 
the holy of the Lord, honorable and, and shall honor him, not doing thy own ways or finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt the delight, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. This prophecy also applies to our time. The breach, now listen carefully, the breach was made in the law of God when the Sabbath was changed by the Roman power. But the time has come for the divine institution, for that divine institution to be restored. The breach is to be repaired and the foundation of many generations raised up. Do you hear that through imposed law or design law? How do you hear that statement? As an arbitrary day upon which we go to church, and we just get the right day, then we've repaired the breach. We just have to tell people to stop going to church on Sunday, start going to church on Sabbath, and then the breach is repaired. Is that it? Or do you hear the battle between design law and opposed law? See, how was it possible? Think with me. How is it possible for people who believe in God's law to change it? These are Christians. They changed the law. They still claim to believe in God, don't they? They still worship, they say, the Creator, but they changed law. How could that be possible for them to do that? Well, why isn't there any church today, given what's going on in the world, that has their board meet and say, you know, if you're a member of our church, you are immune from coronavirus? Why doesn't, wouldn't that be great? Hey, you remember this church? This church has voted. All their members are not going to be susceptible to coronavirus. Why, why doesn't the church vote that? They don't have the power over the laws of health. They cannot change them. So what would it mean, and the laws of health, by the way, are God's laws. Remember, we can pass laws to make marijuana legal. We can't pass laws to make it healthy. Those are the differences. We can't change those laws. So what does it mean if a church group, believers, do vote to change God's law? It means they first have exchanged how they understand the law. As long as we understand the law is design law, nobody votes to change it. So the change of the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday was not actually the breach. It was the evidence of the breach. And the breach was, God's law functions like human law. It can be adjusted. It can be changed. We can vote to change it. It's just a system of rules that require enforcement. That was the breach in the law. Breach is thinking they can change God's law. No, the breach is thinking God's law functions like human law, a system of rules. That's the breach. God's law, and therefore, if you accept that, what's justice? And you hear this in Christianity and every denomination. Justice requires God to punish sinners. Zara of Ages, 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed. If man should sin, he cannot be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. It's always been Satan's view that God simply makes up rules, and because he's powerful, he has the greatest power and can punish people for breaking his rules. That's been his position all along. It's a lie. It's a fraud. God is the creator. His laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Breaking his laws result in pain, suffering, and death to those who break him. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full-grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. So when you decide to break any of God's laws, you damage yourself. And thus it requires the creator to intervene in your life to heal the damage, not punish you for breaking the rule. That's the big difference. 
And so Christianity accepted the lie that God's law functions no different than the laws we make up, and thus God becomes an imperial dictator. And this is what Paul says in Thessalonians, that the man of sin sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. How? By all of us viewing God as the source of inflicted pain and suffering and death upon rule breakers. He's punishing rule breakers. That's Satan's view of God. So the breach was made in the law when the Sabbath was changed. She didn't say the breach is the change of the Sabbath. But when the Sabbath was changed. The Sabbath is the evidence of the breach. It's not actually the breach. In fact, you could actually keep the Sabbath under an imperial system of rules and want to stone people who heal others on Sabbath because they're breaking rules. That's the imperial system. Thus, we are called out of paganism. We're called out of Baal worship, the Elijah message. If God is like Baal, requiring appeasement, payment, the blood of sacrifices in order not to kill you, then worship him. If God is like Jesus revealed, then worship him. This is the Elijah message at the end of time. The SD church came into existence reclaiming the right day of worship, but it has not yet fully repaired the breach because it has not rejected the imperial imposed law and often teaches the penal lie that if you don't keep the right day, then God will punish you for not keeping the right day. Notice the Isaiah quote that we read out of Isaiah, that we repair the breach when we call the Sabbath a delight. Can delight in anything be legislated? We have passed a law that you will delight in open borders. You will delight in sanctuary cities, in high taxes. You will delight in high taxes. Can you, can, whatever it is, I'm just trying to say, can you, can you legislate delight? So, so understand what, what Isaiah said. We repair the breach when the Sabbath is called a delight. Can that be done by presenting the Sabbath as an imperial rule that God has legislated and that you will be punished for not keeping? Will that ever be a delight? No, that's Satan's lie. It's his trick. The only way for the Sabbath to be the light is for us to change our hearts about how we understand God and the law itself. God is the creator. And the Sabbath is a gift. The Sabbath reveals the character of God, truth presented in love, leaving us free. It's a gift that reveals his loving kindness, his mercy, his truth, his methods. And we delight in the freedom, in the liberty. Have you ever been in any situation, some of you I know, have been in relationships that were not free. You were dominated, you were controlled by somebody in a relationship, maybe mistreated, maybe abused. When you finally got freedom, was there delight? Delight in freedom. Yes, This is the Sabbath. We delight in the freedom it it guarantees us and reveals to us. We delight in the God who makes. It's one of the reasons why Sabbath is so, it's a created day like any other day. It's a day created to show how God uses his power. And we can delight in realizing that all-powerful God creates with his power. And like at at the Last Supper, serves with his power. So days one through six reveal, of creation week, creation week, days one through six, you're watching, you're an angel in heaven, you're watching, God's creating. What days one through six reveal? 
God's powerful. Powerful, 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 powerful. Day seven reveals the character of the one who wields. In the context of, you don't have a right to rule. You're, 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 you're powerful, but, but you abuse your power. You, you'll, punish, you'll punish people who question. In the, in, the, in the context of a rebellion, does God use his power to compel service and obedience? Or does God instead rest and stop using his power? I rest. You've seen the evidence. I rest my case. Think for yourself. Creates a, a day of reflection, a day for, for beings to come to their own conclusion. If God were the imperial dictator Satan alleges, there would be no Sabbath. The Sabbath's existence proves that Satan lied. We're really free. When the Sabbath is presented through imperial law, though, a rule that we must keep or God will punish us for it, then we misrepresent God as a dictator. Freedoms become restricted. The Sabbath becomes a burden. Anybody raised in a system where, where the Sabbath was the, the most enslaving day of the week, the day where you had the least liberty, the day you watched the clock for the t- last tick of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Sabbath day to end, so you, and you would go, free, I'm free for another six days. Th- and I'm the only one that felt that way. You're laughing because some of you felt that way, right? Yeah, that was a misrepresentation. It was a lie. The Jews in Christ's day had the right day of the week, but they still had the wrong law because they had an imposed law. Thus, they worshipped the wrong God, as evidenced by when God stood among them and showed them the freedoms in the Sabbath. They hated him and they killed him, but kept the right day, got him off the cross so they could keep the day. Understand that. You can have the weekly Sabbath and still have the wrong law, and because you have the wrong law on the right day, you're still worshiping the wrong God. Do you know how many Seventh-day Adventists do not know this? They think it's all about the day. How many Christians today practice their Christianity just like the Jews did? Whether it's the Sabbath or some other doctrines, method of baptism, they promote it through the imposed law lie. Thus, they promote this idea that if you don't do this, God will be required to punish you. Their spirit temples understand this now. If they, as long as they hold the imposed law view of God's law, their spirit temples are not protected from Satan setting himself up there, declaring himself to be God. I, I want you to think about what I just said. The, bre- the, the law of God, the desi- understanding his true law, the design law, law of love, law of liberty, uh, how design law, that becomes a hedge of protection so that you see God as designer, creator, and so et cetera. But if you accept the lie that God's law works like human law, system of rules, there's a breach made in the wall that protects you, and you allow in a distorted view of God into your temple. And it says, this man of sin sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is why there's a message that is to go forward at this, part, at this time in human history. We are to be repairers of the breach. We teach the truth about what God's law is. And in so doing, we cooperate with God for cleansing and rebuilding the temple. But Tim, yes. it feels like 
years of knowing this, I feel like a victim, like I've been brainwashed. When is this design law concept, which is still new, going to be just second nature to me? Where I, I, it's just easy, and I think all the time this way, instead of the old way. How long is it going to take? How long would it take to learn to speak French fluently? <laughs> well, for me? <laughs> yes. It would depend on how much. It would, it would depend on a couple of things. It would depend on your investment and desire. Immersion. It, uh, investment and desire. And then application. Uh, you uh, think about uh, someone who, at pretty much any age, falls in love with somebody from another nation, another language, and you move to their country, and you're deeply invested to be able to communicate with that person. Versus, you know what? That would be kind of cool if we could, if we could speak another language. I think it would be cool to speak another language. It'd be nice to. It makes. I think it would be advantageous to. But there's no real desire to. There's a difference. I see many people who see this. Go, that makes sense. That'd be cool. I wish I thought that way. Are we invested, though? And even though we're invested, though, we're in love, we're invested, we want to do it, does that mean, and we've chosen, we're applying, does that mean we're fluent instantly? No, it still takes time to apply it. It really does. For those who are deeply passionate, deeply studying, deeply applying, it takes while to work out the old, automated ways of seeing things. But the way our brains work, they rewire. And I will tell you, I'm still growing in this. I pretty much, I think, crossed over the hurdle of seeing things through the imposed law. I see it very quickly now through design law. But I remember when I first started down this trail years ago, it was a, it was a real struggle. I would read things and I'd go, that doesn't make sense. It sounds so legal. It sounds so penal. And then I would study. I'm talking particularly certain Bible passages or certain Ellen White comments they sound so penal so legal and i would sit there and sometimes i might study that one passage for a week or two and i'll take and then i would research and i would go in in the writings and i would find everything i could find that in it, that references or talks about the same theme and then i would try to define the actual words what well like for instance wrath the wrath of god okay i have to understand what that word means in the bible context and so i, I studied out wrath and wrath actually doesn't mean to the penal word um, penal view of taking energy and inflicting it upon somebody romans 1 and other places throughout scripture means that god surrenders or lets people go to reap what they're going to sow but i had to study that out i didn't know that because i was automatically thinking through the old lens so it took a lot of work and effort so i would tell you it's going to take a while but it's very freeing. Once you get that concept, it's, how many of you, it's just so freeing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, Ken. I, I see this as the only way that spirituality can be truly universal. And if you, if you understand that there's no way that you can require other people to believe exactly as you do about the day or about any given imposed law concept, then you realize that this is truly the only way to have freedom to talk with anybody That's right. in, a, in a liberating way. No, I think you're exactly right. So I want to uh, uh, um, recap what I just said, because it's a big point. When you hear the, the Bible metaphor, repairs of the breach in the wall, what's the wall? What's the breach? It's a hole in the wall, but what is it? 
Okay? So, so the wall, the wall is metaphor for the law of God. Okay? And the law of God is, how was that, how was God's law breached? By understanding it falsely. That's right. By, by believing that it is imperial. It's a system of imposed rules. That opens the, the mind to accept the, the pagan view of God. And thus the, the spirit temple becomes contaminated and Satan sets himself up in God's temple. So the repairing of the breach is to reject imperial views of law, see God as creator, his laws as design laws, and thus we begin the process of cleansing our temple. Wendell. A wall that has a breach in it is no longer functional. That's right. And, and once we have a wrong concept of the law, it's no longer functional. That's right. That's right. We're not protected. Our, uh, and, so, and this is why this breach, it's so, it's so subtle. If it were possible to deceive even the very elect. And so many see the writings of Ellen White and about the Sabbath, they will see that if we just repair it, we repair it by going to church on the right day, by reclaiming the Sabbath. And thus, once we've done that, we repair the breach under the idea that God is an imperialistic uh, dictator. He made up the Sabbath. It's just a rule. The moral laws are his laws like we make up, and he must punish rule breakers, but we go to church on the right day. We haven't repaired the breach. And this is what many people have fallen into the trap of, and this is the real gospel message, is the message that we are worshiping our creator God, and he, his laws are the design law. So Sabbath was created for humanity. That was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift to us, a blessing to us. But it is also, in addition to the blessing to us, it's an evidence to the entire universe of God's methods and character. Example, it's like an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a gift to the woman who receives it. Is it not? But is it not also simultaneously an evidence to the whole world that she's engaged? It's both. And so the Sabbath is a gift to humankind, but it is also an evidence of God's character, truth, presented all week long during creation week, in love, demonstrating his methods, how he built and constructed life to operate on earth, and then setting his creatures free. I rest my case. And thus, Sabbath, real Sabbath observance is practicing the methods having the law written on the heart and mind of God. We present the truth in love, and we live in freedom. Thus, the Sabbath is a delight to us. Just a few little sentences from Desire of Ages, page 763. Because when I read these, it, in this light, it, it just came differently than whenever I read it before, that men will set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. Is one sentence. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. And then the third sentence is, by substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. There you go. If you understand that. And when you understand design law, that becomes very clear. When you don't understand design law, you read those same things, and you just say, well, that's Sunday versus Saturday. It's not. Guys, it's not. It's what the two days represent. The, the, uh, the two days are signs or symbols. The Sabbath is a sign or an evidence of designer, creator, and his design laws. Uh, and, and Sunday is a evidence or a mark of imperialism. It became a day of worship by legislative action. Thus, it represents a legislative type of government, imperialistic. And it's really the two systems of government that are either God's system or the world's system. It's not particularly the day you go to church on. You go to church on Wednesdays if you want. So this is why, and called the Sabbath of Light, 
people can worship it and honor it in different ways because it may be a different delight as long yes 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 as long as we're not worshiping an imperial dictator yeah um from from the book prophets and kings i want to read through some things the spiritual restoration uh this is on uh, starting on page 6 677 the spiritual restoration of of which the work carried forward in nehemiah's day was a symbol uh was a symbol is outlined in the words of isaiah um, they shall build up the old waste places repair of the breach the prophet here describes a people who in the time of general departure from truth and righteousness, are seeking to restore the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. What are what is it? So, so those who are repairing the breach, symbolically in that prophecy, are representing a people, a group of people who are seeking to restore principles. What are principles? L E, not A L. <laughs> Underlying truths, you know, the, the reality, the underlying reality of things. Like principles, principles, for example. principles are another word for design laws. That's what they are. Principles and design laws. It's another word. And what was restoring design law in our understanding and our hearts and minds described as doing in the passage it's repairing the breach when we restore design law when we restore principles of god's kingdom that is repairing the breach in the wall keep going with the quote they are repairs so here it is yes uh, uh, principles are the foundation of god's kingdom they are repairs of the breach that has been made in god's law the wall that has been placed around his chosen ones for their protection and, and obedience to whose precepts of justice truth and purity is to be their perpetual safeguard in words of unmistakable meaning, the prophet points out the specific work of this remnant people. Turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, call the Sabbath of delight. Um, I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. In the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. Now notice what this, how this is re- read. It's very interesting. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man is to be repaired. Does this say the breach made in the law by changing the Sabbath? No. Again, the Sabbath change was evidence of the breach. The real breach is imperialism. That is to be rejected. And when we reject imperialism, we reject penal substitution theology, which is the primary theology of almost every Protestant denomination. And the primary theology is Jesus came and all the sins placed uh, of the world were placed upon him, past, present, and future. And God punished Jesus and executed Jesus in our place. And if you accept that legal payment, it gets uh, applied to a legal document in heaven. And you get to be declared righteous even though you're not. This is the wine of Babylon. This is what we are to reject. And I will tell you, because I reject it, people will say, see, Jennings doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement. And they're lying to you. If you're listening to this and you think that I don't believe in substitutionary atonement, let me, let me just give a couple of examples. This is, this is the flawed thinking of level four and below thinkers. They think very binary. Either or. Either Jesus died to pay our penalty, or there is no substitution. If I say Jesus did not die in order for textile manufacturers to learn how to dye clothing purple, 
He didn't die for that. Is that the same thing as saying he did not die for our salvation? Those are completely different things, aren't they? To say he did not die to pay a legal penalty to his father is not the same thing as saying he didn't die as our substitute. He did. He did die as our substitute, but not to pay legal penalty to his father. In fact, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Substitution, right there, boom. Biblical substitution, I believe in it. But I believe in what the Bible says, not this penal lie. And what does the Bible say in the rest of the verse? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He died to restore us to righteousness. The penal legal lie says this. When you, when you accept Jesus as your, as your Savior, then what happens is his legal record becomes your legal record in heaven, and God declares you to be legally righteous even though you're not righteous. That is not biblical. That's Satan's fraud. It's a false security. It allows people to go through this world, either in the Roman system or the Protestant system, continuing to perpetuate sin, damaging their character, searing their heart, but they don't have to worry about it because they're legally righteous in Jesus, even though they continue to visit porn sites and gamble and beat their wife or whatever it is they're doing. It's okay because they go to confession. And when they go to confession, they get the legal application and get it absolved. Okay, They're absolved of it. Or they, or they don't have to go to confession because they've already been saved and all their sins have already been paid for in the past and they're already saved, so what does it matter? Once saved, always saved. This is the corruption of penal legal substitution. It says, so the breach made at the time that the Sabbath was changed. That's the real breach. Now, keep on the quote. God's remnant people, you want to be remnant? You want to be part of the last day generation? Standing before the world as reformers, reformers are to show that the law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform. Think through the meaning of that. The law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform. What does that mean? Because it's the law of life. The principles of which life is established. One cannot have health while violating the laws of health. Any enduring reform will harmonize and bring people into harmony with the laws that God built life to operate upon. Then it endures. And that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment to stand as a memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power of God. Pause. What law lens do you hear that through? The Sabbath, a constant reminder of the power of God. What do you hear that through? What law lens? Do you hear that through imperial law? He's powerful. Or do you, what power do you think the Sabbath is a reminder of here? A constant of the power of God. Design law, creation. For six days, we have power, but what's the seventh day revealed? Does the seventh day reveal any kind of power? Power of love. Oh, what does Paul say about the gospel in Romans 1? It is the power of God, the gospel, the good news, the, the message of truth. See, there's power to create, energy dispense that takes and, and just speaks matter into existence and takes energy and turns it into stuff and builds things like planets and stars and galaxies. There's, that's power. Is that what's referred to that the Sabbath is to let us know that he about him remind us of his power? Or is the Sabbath to remind us of a different power? The gospel power, the power of God's character, the power of truth and love. Hopefully, when you read stuff like that, your computers, your brains go, oh, da, 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 da. oh don't, don't forget this out of Desire of Ages in 59. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as one casts the pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. 
The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon mercy and love and goodness. And the presentation of these principles is to be the means used. Now, listen to this. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. When you read uh, that the Sabbath uh, is a memorial of God's power, were you thinking creative power to speak stuff into existence? Or were you thinking the power of truth and love, moral power? I will tell you the vast majority of preachers that I've heard in the Adventist church who promote the Sabbath go for the physical power. In fact, I've never heard one sermon in my entire life that connects the Sabbath with moral power with the power of truth and love. And that's its real power. Not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. The heart cannot be won by physical power. Sin cannot be eliminated by physical power. Sin is eliminated by the power of truth presented in love, leaving people free. I, I have to go on. We're almost out of time. Um... I want to read this to you because we're, we're, we, we've talked about the, the hedge. We've talked about repairing the breach. I want to talk about the part of the preparing the breach, rebuilding the temple. The rebuilding the temple. Is there an application from Daniel's time when he's praying that they go back and the Nehemiah and Ezra go back to not only build the wall, but to, uh, to, to repair the wall, but to, to rebuild the temple? Listen to this out of Manuscript Release, page volume 2. Your faculties are separate and distinct, yet each is dependent for its success upon other. So each day God works with his building, stroke upon stroke, to perfect the structure, which thus grows into the holy temple for the Lord. One stone mislaid affects the whole building. This figure represents human character, which is to be wrought upon point by point. There is not to be a flaw in it, for it is the Lord's building. Every stone must be perfectly laid. God warns you and every worker to take heed on how you build so that your building may, be, may bear the test of storm and tempest because it is riveted in the eternal rock, with the capital R. Every hour may be spent in placing stone upon the sure foundation, ready for the day of test and revelation, when we shall be seen just as we are, seen just as we are, His church upon the earth is to assume divine... Now notice, we were talking about your character. Notice the transition in the quote. His church upon the earth is to assume divine proportions before the world as a temple composed of living stones, every stone emitting light. This building is to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill, which cannot be hid. What is the light on the hill, the city, the light of the city on the hill? It's not any human government, folks. Ronald Reagan applied it to the United States. The United States is a light on the hill, the city on the hill. It's not. It's the church of God. The church built with people whose characters have been renewed such that they have the law of God written upon their hearts and minds and they come into the unity of love. It is composed of stones laid close together, stones fitted to stone, making a solid building. All the stones are not of the same form or shape. Some are large, some are small, but each has its own crevice to fill. And the value of each stone is determined by the light it reflects in the world. The light, what does that mean? Photons? (laughs) The light of truth of God's kingdom. Boy, there's a whole section on the prayer here. Should we talk about intercessory prayer? 
Okay, so first, prayer. We have to go kind of quick. Prayer, conversation with God. What is the purpose of communication with God? If God already knows our thoughts before we even think them, what is the purpose? Is it to inform God of something he doesn't know? Then what's the point of prayer if he already knows? As Karen says, it is to enable us to receive it. To enable us to receive Relationship and development. Relationship and development. Do parents sometimes already know what their children are going to say before their child says it? Did you ever, have you ever actually knew what they were going to say before they say it? Well, why is, is there any benefit for the child saying it to you, even though you already know? Is there any benefit in that, for the child actually saying it? And to speaking their thoughts, what is the benefit? Relationship and development. The child experiences the parent listening, the parent caring, the parent's concern, uh, gains knowledge of the parent who cares and loves them. This brings security and peace. And the child also develops in their ability to think, to communicate, to comprehend, to understand, to open, to be honest, to, to overcome fears, to overcome insecurities, to lay themselves bare before their parents and share their heart. There is a process of development in this. If the child asks the parent for something that the child is convinced is good for them, but the parent knows they are either not ready to handle or it would actually harm them, what does a loving parent do? Your child asks you for something and you're, it's, they're, not, they're not mature enough to handle it in your judgment or it's going to harm them. What's a loving parent do? Deny. Does the request of the child work to recreate love and interest in the heart of the parent? I didn't love you till you asked me, but now that you've asked me, now I've got love and interest. Is that what it does? Does it create love and interest? No, of course not. But the child grows closer to the parent through the experience and learns more of the parent's values and characters. The parent says yes, says no, explains, sets boundaries, holds accountable. The child is learning about values and principles, aren't they? In that experience. What if the child has misconceptions about the parent and has developed a belief that the parent doesn't actually uh, love them, doesn't uh, grant their request, and, and isn't really interested in their well-being, and, 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 and says to the parent, if you don't give me what I want, I'm never going to speak to you again. What might a parent do in that case if the parent believed it was true? They were going to lose the connection with their child. Might the parent give them something and let them learn in the school of hard knocks? Well, what did God do when they insisted on the flesh pots of Egypt? He was giving them manna. They begged and begged for meat. So the quail came, and what happened? Thousands died. Well, what, did they do when they, what did God do when they wanted kings? He warned and warned and warned against it. But and what happened after they, they learned? They learned a hard lesson. What did God do when they wanted to go to war rather than wait for the land to be abandoned? What did God do when they insisted on worshiping the Baals? He actually stepped back and let the Babylonians come. What did the father do in the story of the prodigal when the prodigal insisted on leaving home? Let him go. You know, we are like children who know so little of reality, including so little of God and his plans. Prayer is the process of coming into connection with the divine, of opening the heart and mind to the movement of the spirit, listening to what God has to tell us. And in so doing, we learn of him, come into contact with him, open ourselves to be enlightened, ennobled, and healed by him. In such a relationship, where we, send, we, we surrender ourselves in that trust relationship. Our burdens are lifted. Come unto me, all the labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Our guilt and shame is removed. Our fears are taken away. Um, a mind is enlightened. We see new possibilities new perspectives, new purposes. We have new goals. We come to love and cherish and value the things that we previously didn't love, didn't love and cherish. 
our love for God increases and we, we willingly surrender to him and choose to follow him in fulfilling purposes we never even knew before. And then intercessory prayer, purpose of intercessory prayer, is it to get God to, to act or care about some person he doesn't already care about? Is it to bring God's attention to something he doesn't know about? God, I know you're busy, but my friend over here needs a little help. Is it to change God's mind about something? To get God to be merciful when God would be less merciful if you weren't asking him? Here's an interesting quote. It's very, it's, I found this helpful to me in my own life many times. The conflicts of earth in the providence of God furnish the very training necessary to develop characters fit for the courts of heaven. We are to become members of the royal family, sons of God, and all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and submit themselves to his will. Our God is ever-present help in every time of need. He is perfectly acquainted with the most secret thoughts of our hearts and with all the interest and purpose of the soul. When we are in perplexity, even before we open to him our distress, he is making arrangements for our deliverance. And this is what I really like, this sentence. He always knows much better than we do just what is necessary for the good of his children, and he leads us as we would choose to be led if we could discern our own hearts and see our necessities and perils as God sees them. I've found a lot of comfort in that. That quote is found in Signs of the Times, May 25, 1888. And I've had that experience. If I could stand next to God's throne and see the end from the beginning and all the variables that he sees, I wouldn't choose different than he's choosing for me. That's very comforting. What about the intercessory prayer? And what about when you pray for somebody and it doesn't seem to be answered? When I was in my residency, one of my uh, colleagues' mother was dying of breast cancer. And she prayed, she was very devout. She prayed for her mother's healing, but her mother died of breast cancer. Later she told me she initially, it was hard for her to understand until she realized that God was more merciful to her mother than she was. That she said God allowed her mother to pass beyond temptation, beyond more pain, beyond the disease, beyond suffering, and her mother will never feel pain again, never suffer again, but... If her prayer had been answered the way she wanted it, her mother would still be on this earth and perhaps suffering under chemo or some treatment and still under the the, the pains and, and ravages of this world. And that she had great peace realizing that God did answer her prayer by delivering her mother from all future suffering. Different perspective. Some may call this a rationalization. She just rationalized. But I believe it strikes a point. It reveals a point. God looks beyond our comprehension to realities that we're unaware of and takes all the multiplicities of possibility into consideration when answering our prayer. But there's one other aspect also of the intercessory prayer, and that's what Daniel brings, and that is this great controversy where, we, where he begins to pray and Gabriel comes that I was dispatched 21 days ago, but the prince of Persia was opposing me. And now the prince of Greece is coming. I've got to go back, and no one's there to help me except Michael, your, your, your prince. Now, who is the prince of Persia? No, it's not Satan. Satan is called the prince of this world. Is Persia the whole world or a portion of the world? So Satan's the prince of the whole world, this world of sin, this world of selfishness. If Satan's the prince of this whole world, then who would be a prince of Persia? One of his minions, one of the fallen angels that works for Satan. Okay, And the prince of Greece is another 
uh, one of his minions. And so Gabriel comes from heaven to bring light and truth and principles of love and good desires and try to influence the heart of Cyrus. But the prince of, uh, of uh, Persia, you can imagine, is flaming up his fears. Oh, if you let those people go, they'll raise up an army and they'll overthrow your kingdom and flaming up all the fears to act selfishly not to do this. And, uh, and Gabriel is fighting with influence of truth and light and, and then and, and the lies and the fears are being flamed up. And he says, I've got to go back because the prince of Greece is coming to work against me. There's no one to help me except Michael. Now, according to most understanding, how many angels fell out of heaven? A third. That means there's two-thirds good ones left, right? So we have a two-to-one advantage in angelic host, good versus bad. How come there's only one angel to help Gabriel if we've got two-to-one advantage? Uh, What kind of war is this? It's cosmic, but is this a physical war? Is it a physical might war? We don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons used are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments, pretensions. It sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Okay. Now, Gabriel occupies what position in heaven, as far as we understand? Archangel who took the position of? Lucifer. Lucifer, right. So who's Satan now, right? So when Lucifer is kicked out of heaven... Gabriel takes the position. This is the position, as we understand, of the covering cherub, who is in the presence of God. So he is the position who is the closest knowledge of the truth of God's kingdom. If you understand the war is about bringing truth and light to bear on hearts and minds, there is no other created being in the universe that knows more of God's truth and light than Gabriel. There's no other angel that can add to what Gabriel can bring. So if we're going to have more truth of God, more truth of his character, more truth of his kingdom, then Gabriel knows who we're going to have to have. God himself. And so God, Jesus, in his pre-incarnate form, comes to add more light and more truth than what Gabriel can bring. And it wins the day. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so amazed at the beauty of your character, how you've designed this world and this universe to run. Lord, we ask for the outpouring of the Spirit. Enable this message to go forth. Help us to repair the breach in your law so people will see you as the creator and the builder of reality. And we can evict this distortion of you out of the hearts and minds, cleansing our temples, and be rebuilt into a church, a beautiful, vibrant church that loves you and loves each other so the world can be enlightened and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.